National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, is brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check out their website at cybersecuritysummit.org for a list of their upcoming webinar series. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, and you've joined us for National Security This Week. We get together every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're fortunate enough to be joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to learn more about national security challenges and opportunities. We often discuss the tools of national power on this show. In the national security arena, the tools are referred to as DIME, which stands for Diplomacy, Information, Military, and Economic Power. How nations use DIME is called statecraft, and statecraft is both an art and a science. Part of what makes the tools of national power function well is directly connected to how well a society functions. In the case of the United States, a free and open society, and a nation that has led the post-World War II liberal democratic order, we rely heavily on the system of checks and balances within our own government to ensure government doesn't stray beyond what our citizens authorized or beyond the U.S. Constitution. Built into our U.S. Constitution are the checks and balances between the three branches of government, the legislative, executive, and judicial branches. But in the United States, we also have rights under the Constitution, and those rights are part of the Bill of Rights, the first ten amendments to the Constitution. The First Amendment, commonly known as freedom of speech, enshrines our rights as individuals to say what we wish without threat of imprisonment. It also gives rights to the press, to journalists, to hold government accountable to the people. In a free, open, democratic society, the power of a free press cannot be underestimated. Journalists play a vital role in ensuring the branches of government are held accountable to the people of our nation for the actions the government takes in our name. The press is often referred to as the fourth estate, and today we'll be discussing the importance of the fourth estate to American national security with someone who is a true expert in this area. Dana Priest, the Washington Post investigative reporter, became the third John S. and James L. Knight Chair in Public Affairs Journalism at the Philip Merrill College of Journalism at the University of Maryland on May 2nd of 2014. Priest has spent the majority of her career focusing on national security, military operations, and the U.S. intelligence agencies. A two-time Pulitzer Prize winner and three-time finalist, Priest uncovered secret CIA prisons in Eastern Europe and deplorable conditions for veterans at the Walter Reed Medical Center in Washington. In 2010, her project, Top Secret America, covered the buildup in top-secret intelligence organizations in the aftermath of September 11th of 2001. A unique, searchable database of top-secret sites was part of that investigation, which was expanded and published as a book and a frontline documentary released in September of 2011. Her first book, The Mission, Waging War and Keeping Peace with America's Military, was a finalist for the Pulitzer and is still widely used at the U.S. Service, the US military's uh, service academies. Priest is an alumna of US Santa, UC Santa Cruz. Uh, Priest's focus at the journalism school has been on global security issues and the increasingly important role of the digital world on security. Her tenured position provides a unique opportunity to help the journalism profession and journalism education to define the future of national security reporting. Her student-led project, Pressed Uncuffed, successfully focused attention on the plight of journalists who've been jailed around the world for their reporting, and we will cover some of that today. Dana Priest, welcome to National Security This Week. I'm so glad to be here, John. Thank you. And where are you sitting this morning? I'm sitting in my home office where I've written both of those books while overseeing teenagers who didn't want to be overseen. <laughs> I'm in Washington, D.C. All right. All right. Well, thank you for joining us today. I've been looking forward to this show ever since you said you would do it. Uh, we have a lot to discuss. Uh, our longtime listeners know that uh, at the start of each show, I, I like to try and get to know our, best, our guest a little bit better. Uh, Dana, what was it about the career path of journalism that attracted you to the profession? What inspired you to become a reporter? And how did you land your position at the Washington Post, one of the premier newspapers in the nation? Well, I think what inspired me was just a natural curiosity that I had since I was a kid uh, to be able to go anywhere and do anything that I thought would be interesting. And of course, I didn't think of journalism yet, but when I when I worked at the student paper at my university, which was uh, not led by any faculty, it was kind of the blind leading the blind, <laughs> but we had a lot of freedom. I learned how to look up property records and did a story on slumlords. I learned 
that I could actually make the administration talk to me just by asking because they respected the role of the media. And then when I went on to various internships, I found that same sort of in inherent power in reporting that was just so surprising to me that if I asked an official, be they a police officer, firefighter, uh, bad guy sometimes, um, and officials, that they would respond. And that was kind of thrilling for a young person. But it's also let me go to places that I ordinarily, I mean, as a normal person, wouldn't have been able to go. Things like down into the bottom of a coal mine to cover a coal miner strike or around the world with all ranks of the military um, and, you know, many other things. So it's been a blast. I can't imagine doing anything other than this, which is why I'm still doing it at this age of 65. I can't believe it. And uh, actually, I'm still energized by it. I'm working on a story now that I'm very excited about. And um, so it's just it just motivates me to learn new things and try to understand them pretty quickly. So I I get a decent grasp before I start asking stupid questions. <laughs> and how'd you catch on at the Washington Post? Well, I was an intern there on the on the foreign desk of all things because I'd I'd gone to Columbia Journal, sorry, Columbia International Affairs School, and I fell in love with the with the Washington Post and with the foreign desk. But I was a little young to be hired there. So they said, go away and get some Metro experience. So I did that at the St. Petersburg Times for just 15 months. It was a blast. I covered land scandals and crazy things that happened with like animals that pecked down the, the power lines and <laughs> all sorts of fun, crazy things. And then the Post called me back to be an editor on the foreign desk because that's how they could get me in. And then I... And so that's how I started with the agreement that I would go back to Metro, which I did after one year. And I started as a reporter on, in the smallest, best government county <laughs> in the area, which was Arlington, and uh, found some scandals nonetheless uh, as a you know budding investigative reporter, but had very fun uh, covering all sorts of social issues and educational issues and everything like that. And then I slowly made my way into the national staff, uh, first as a federal page reporter writing about the bureaucracy of Washington government, federal government. But then I got a big break and I and I started covering the Pentagon, um, which was, I had a lot of stereotypes at the time, I must say, when I came in, I knew nothing about it. And it's it became such a fascinating beat to me. And I stayed on it for seven years and then decided to write that to write the mission uh and and then decided i should probably go to another beat and covered intelligence which i mistakenly thought in the beginning was how could that be so different than the military so i kept asking <laughs> to go places with them because <laughs> i had been a lot of places with the military you know sometimes it took schmoozing up a general to let them to let me go along with them but it worked pretty well and i kept trying that at the cia and finally the press officer yelled at me we're a covert operation we're not going to bring you anywhere <laughs> so it was very different than covering the military yeah. but it was a lot of um well fun i don't know because i did it after 9 11. it was very important uh, it was, I think, uh, and it was very difficult, but um, rewarding, rewarding. Yep. So you've been a reporter with the Washington Post for, for many years now, o over 30 years. Is that right? Yes. Your, your work has uh, clearly been some hard hitting stuff. It's been, you know, you've, you've held the U.S. national security establishment accountable to the American people. Uh, so that access that you've had over the years comes with a, a high degree of responsibility in the quality uh, and accuracy of your reporting. Uh, a decade ago, you took this uh, chaired position at the University of Maryland's College of Journalism. What was it attra that attracted you to the world of education and specifically to teaching and training the next generation of journalists to uphold those highest standards of the journalism profession? 
Yes, that was a time at the post where I saw a lot of young people being hired, mainly to do uh, what I would call technology or platform type of issues, like multi, multi-platform multi type of issues that the post was expanding. And they called themselves journalists. And I just thought, oh, wait a minute, they're not really journalists. They're doing some kind of technology. And I was very concerned that young people didn't know how to uh, cultivate and identify sources, how to actually talk to people. This was also when social media was blowing up. And so young people were much more addicted, started being addicted to cell phones and that sort of thing. And I saw that they just weren't as comfortable talking with people. And I got really worried about the the state of journalism uh, and what it would become. And at that same time, I happened to be recruited to apply for this best job in journalism. It's a tenured position. I have really complete freedom. And so I've designed a couple courses, well, more than a couple that I really love. And I love talking. I love teaching students. They are, for the most part, very optimistic, for the most part, now very willing to <laughs> do the hard thing, which is to talk to people and, and get comfortable with that. And they also have a range of technological skills that, you know, I never had and I won't have. So I do think that if you combine those two things, you're going to have, you're already starting to have the best generation of journalists yet. And we really need it because the world is, well, as it is. So we really need good journalists. I do want to return uh, back to that topic of your student uh, journalists uh, towards the end of the show. Uh, but I want to make sure that we dive into some of these core uh, national security-related discussions uh, that I know you are an expert on. Uh, but before we do that, uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Dana Priest from The Washington Post and the Philip Merrill College of Journalism at the University of, Min of Maryland, and we're discussing the role journalism plays in holding government accountable in the national security arena. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, okay, uh, Dana, let's get into our core discussions for today. Let's talk about some of the specific stories you've covered over the years and the trends you see happening around the world with regard to journalism and national security. And I want to begin by asking you uh, how the U.S. national security establishment has changed after uh, the 9-11 attacks in uh, September 11th of 2001. H how profoundly different is American national security thinking today, really for the past two de decades after that horrific day? Uh, how, how have American national security actions changed as a result of 9-11? Uh, well, I would I would put them into two timelines. One, uh, it's... It's not now what it used to be right after 9-11. I would say in the first five years of 9-11 is very different than the last 15 years. Uh, and what I mean by that is <clears throat> the national security establishment did not know what they didn't know. Mm. And they were very worried that a next attack was coming. And Congress was too. So Congress gave them not only more money than they asked for, but more money they than they could really absorb, uh, you know, uh, intelligently and more authority than they'd ever had before. I'm thinking of the presidential finding that was signed by President Bush uh, after 9-11 that really gave the CIA in particular um, a lot of freedom. I would say complete freedom in a way to do uh, things that had never had never been done before, or at least in my record, yeah, had not been done before in the history of the CIA. And the military grew some special um, forces that also were given huge authorities to do things that hadn't been done before. And I'm thinking mainly of Joint Special Operations Command, which is the clandestine units of the military, but also special forces and ultimately conventional forces as well. So uh, also, very importantly as a to the reporting group, is that uh, everything that was done after 9-11 by the military and the intelligence community was classified uh, because of various types of actions, because of, and now this changed later, but it was certainly the case for the first five years, 
which meant that for reporters to to do the normal job of asking the question, what is our military doing? What's the strategy? What's the tactics? How successful are they? And are those getting us to our goal? To ask those simple questions and to report them out meant that you had to go break some rules that the government had for their people. You had to go into the classified world. And reporters do that, but they but it's difficult. It's probably more difficult than it looks like on the outside. And um, that's that really characterized, for me, I was covering intelligence at the time, the difficulty of trying to cover the subject. And we did not find out on the intelligence realm for several years what actually was going on. And for me, that culminated in a series of stories I did about counterterrorism operations by covert counterterrorism operations by the by the CIA. But also, uh, I did a lot of reporting about JSOC, that clandestine military unit that actually had, in some ways, more freedom than the CIA because they had less oversight at the time from Congress, just because of the way the authorities worked out in the past and applied to that present day. Uh, so it was very closed down. It was very difficult to have even background discussions for the reporters used to going into the field as war correspondents, which which I am not. Uh, they also had, uh, when they were given access through conventional forces, which they were to some extent, they, uh, you know, of course, they saw just what they saw in front of their eyes. Mm -hmm. And so as a as an organization, our job was to, you know, use all of those soda straw views, as the military likes to say, and combine it with people reporting from the Pentagon and in the intelligence community, combine that to cover the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq every every day. You know, it was a combination of those views. Um so the military part of that was in some ways a little bit more controlled than um, back at the Pentagon, just by the very nature of what people were doing. And there was an agreed, I would call it censorship on the, in the battlefield. Um, people had to submit their copy for review, not everywhere, but in many places. Um, and and uh, I would say the national security world, what changed there was a very deep realization that they had not worked together. And this is why 9-11 happened. And you can look at the congressional reports, the investigation afterwards, and that is absolutely the case, you know. Uh, so they did for a while. Uh, I think rivalries still happen but there was an effort to integrate different agencies, including the State Department, although the State Department was very much cut out from a lot of the CIA's uh, covert operations, which they were not supposed to be, but they were. Uh, so I do think it changed over time, but I feel like in a lot of ways, we're back to almost pre 9-11, um, maybe not quite, not quite. I mean, people are, um, uh still on guard against terrorism but my my favorite example for lessons not learned is january 6th because you had it was very much it was very similar to uh pre 911 in the sense that there were a lot of warnings that could have been picked up and and unlike 9-11 they were out there on social media with the groups that were were coordinating so where was homeland security we created this huge bureaucracy after 9-11 we created the department of homeland security which has become quite large now where were they uh i know everybody focuses on the fbi and that's a good focus because they missed a lot of things some people tried to get it up to the right through the right chain of command and get attention for it. But like 9-11, they were not successful at that. And I also have to ask, where was Homeland Security? I have 
tried to get the paper <laughs> to go back and look at the funding that we described in Top Secret America, and much of it was domestically focused, and yet we had we had a surprise attack on the Capitol. How could that happen? So uh, they've not wanted yet, or actually the newspapers have done a great job of recreating what was going on before. The Post just won a Pulitzer for that last year, I believe, and and but the speed of news is so quick that i i feel like as a country we don't we can't we aren't we aren't learning the lessons that are right in front of us i would say the same for the afghanistan papers which is an amazing set of documents about what went wrong in afghanistan but there has not been a national discussion about it and now we find ourselves almost in a almost with bellicose rhetoric about China and Taiwan. And I really think that we, to me, this, this again symbolizes that we have not, uh, or the administration and the political class has not internalized the lessons from Afghanistan and Iraq, just how difficult war is. Hopefully they will. Uh, everybody who's in a political leadership role will sit down and read the the full Pentagon Papers because it, it you I, I totally agree with you. It is an amazing uh, uh, research. Now, one of the most important stories that you, in my perspective, that you broke uh, about the post nine eleven U.S. intelligence community uh, included the CIA's use of uh, what are called black sites to interrogate captured uh, terrorist suspects. Can you explain to our listeners uh, why those black sites were created, uh, where they were located, and what happened at those sites? Uh, and, and then what are the ramifications for the CIA or for the broader U.S. intelligence community uh, because of the existence uh, and activities at those black sites? Uh, okay. this, to, this, to me, is a tremendous example of the oversight that the Fourth Estate provides uh, on uh, the government, uh, in this case, uh, the executive branch and specifically the intelligence community. Uh, for actions that I think most American citizens would be deeply concerned about? Well, at the time that the story ran, we did not, we got a lot of pushback from citizens and we got a lot of pushback from Congress about the fact that we wrote those stories. And it was only later that people moderated their views, I would say, and are willing to talk about the, actually the strategic loss that we suffered because of those sites. So the um, the story came about in a very interesting way. Again, I had my my I still had my military uh, beat reporting hat on, and I started asking people on the battle. Uh, I started asking people who were engaged in military operations there. Where are they keeping the prisoners? You know, is there some um, POW camp somewhere and you know, the answers were weird. They were like, either they didn't know, which was strange, or else they wouldn't say much. And that led one thing to another. Actually, took it took years to understanding that the CIA had set up a completely extrajudicial system for that purpose. They did not want for they did not want these prisoners to be subject to US law which which would have given them a lot of rights and taken away the CIA's unfettered access to interrogating them for useful information about the terrorist networks that were still operating um but it was done in a way that excluded the agencies that would have had a broader view of the cost of doing this, specifically the State Department. And uh, Colin Powell was the secretary at the time. Uh, so they set this up, um, I do think, to give them the benefit of the doubt. The people that set it up were in a panic mode. They, again, thought that we were going to be attacked again. They needed to get intelligence quickly. But what happened was when the FBI had been involved, which was not very long because they they cut out of that. They said, we're not doing this, you know, because they're thinking of trials and they've just tainted all the evidence by, you know, 
waterboarding people, uh, sleep deprivation, all this in combination, which people now do call torture. Um, you know, they, they did not. Their, their ethos, their laws, their authorities, just they could not bring themselves to do this. Plus, they had some really good interrogators who knew the culture, speak the language, and they got much more out of not not the harsh methods, but uh, other methods that were that were just much more professional. And so the CIA was very ham-handed in their in their interrogations. It's never been proven that they actually got any good intelligence and stopped any attacks, although they say they did, and you know Donald Rumsfeld would always say they did. But the case is not is not clear at all, and I would say uh, that they whatever they might have gained, they lost in the strategic view of the United States. Our reputation fell around the world as a protector of human rights and as a as a country of laws in particular. Um, so to get back to the basics, they set up these sites through very quiet liaison with one or two people in the in the countries. And the countries were Thailand, Gitmo had one site for a few months until the military said, we don't want to have this here. Right. Uh, and then Lithuania, Romania, and uh, Poland all had sites. And we did not print the names of the countries in our first story because the administration asked us, well, they didn't want us to print any of the parts of the story, but then they made it clear that they thought that these countries might be putting themselves at risk or we might be putting them at risk and you know this is this is an important point the the post just like any uh, other newspaper that had found something out like this because of the first amendment and the decisions in the pentagon papers case back during the vietnam war it is we have carte blanche to publish classified information. Now, that comes with a huge responsibility, and papers like The Post and The Times, Wall Street Journal, take that responsibility very seriously. We have deep discussions, usually, especially on this story, with um, various levels of the government. So in this case, the Director of National Intelligence, the CIA um, the head of the CIA, uh, we went to, well, eventually my editors were asked to come to the White House um, and George Bush assembled his entire national security team to try to talk them out of covering it. And the Post kept saying, uh, Len Downey kept saying, what is it that you really don't want us to publish because we're going to publish something. And so you're hoping that they will have a mature dialogue with you to say, Look, this thing, this detail will, is going to expose people. It's going to, you know, damage uh, sources and methods. But they, the best they could do was um, John Negroponte, as they were walking out of the Oval Office, put his arm around Len Downey. And Negroponte is a diplomat, the only one in the room, said, you're not going to publish the names, are you? And Downey says, is that what you really care about? And he just repeated what he said, because I think they didn't want to be seen as um, confirming, even though at various parts, George Bush and uh, the director of the CIA told me and told the editors that they didn't even know where the black sites were, which was supposed to give us comfort, but certainly did not. <laughs> Uh, so Len decided to not have any names in the paper. And I went back to him that very day that he made that decision and said, what about if we just say Eastern Europe? And my reasoning was the rest of government was trying to empower de new democracies in Eastern Europe. And yet the CIA was cutting deals with the old intelligence apparatus that was still in power and pulling, having this kind of tug of war with the democratically elected countries. So we were giving them extra extra power in a way to make these very controversial decisions. You know, Dana, that, that, that coverage, that discussion that you just shared with us, 
that's the epitome of of what I was hoping to get to today in this show the the balance that uh, that the press faces uh, the professional career journalism uh, professionals face uh, when trying to decide okay what do we report on because we we don't want to endanger Americans who are out there doing good things but we need to hold government accountable to the American people for actions that are clearly uh, you know, deeply concerning uh, and have bigger impacts on, on American national security interests. Uh, so that thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, we need to take just a short uh, break, about a 45-second break, to recognize the Cybersecurity Summit. We'll be right back. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. The Cybersecurity Summit brings together cyber experts from industry, academia, and all levels of government to explore challenges, solutions, and opportunities in the cyber arena. The three-day summit includes speakers, workshops, discussions about advancing a cyber career, and keynote addresses by top leaders from across the cyber community. Learn more at cybersecuritysummit.org. And we're back here at National Security This Week with our guest, Dana Priest, who's a reporter with the Washington Post. And Dana, I'd like to dive into another topic that you've worked on for a while, and that would be the Pegasus NSO software and the ramifications of how that software has been used for a few years now. You've been part of a, a large group of international journalists who've, who've taken investigative reporting, I'd say, to a whole new level in learning about the Pegasus NSO software and, and how it's been used around the world. And So let me start with this first question. What is the Pegasus NSO software? Who developed it, and, and what does it do? Yep. So NSO is an Israeli company, um, it developed a, it was, it's a group of people that used to work in the cyber uh, world for the Israeli government. And they developed this very clever and powerful tool, which allows a client of theirs to, um, to penetrate your cell phone. Your, if you have a smartphone, either Android or iPhone, Apple, and take it over literally take it over everything including deleted things deleted images deleted text messages and it can turn the microphone on and the camera and so it can function as a real-time surveillance device and they sell this what they say is they sell it to come come uh countries only countries that are looking for terrorists and criminals. But what we found, and they must get the approval of the Israeli defense ministry, because this is in, in considered a weapon, a military-grade weapon. So they have export controls, which means the Israeli government must sign off. And what we found through this consortium, which was very unusual for me to work on, it was, it was 12 newspapers and 40 reporters at least who um, worked in various countries in the middle of COVID to try to figure out how they could prove what, what this was doing. We did forensics on several dozen phones, but what we found is that they were also giving it, selling it to countries like um, many countries in the Gulf, for instance, countries that were not democracies, and countries that were what I would call struggling democracies like India and Mexico. And those countries were using it to surveil journalists, uh, human rights defenders, lawyers, and just plain old political opposition. So this was a very different kind of clientele or different kind of person with the cell phone that had obviously hadn't done anything wrong, except maybe they were critics of whatever government was using it. Uh, in my reporting, I discovered that the wife of the murdered journalist, Jamal Khashoggi, before his murder, uh, she her cell phone, she was a flight attendant in Emirati Airlines, so she had nothing to do with you know, the political realm, but they had implanted this um, on her device while they, while she was in detention in the UAE for 24 hours uh, when she landed, they put her in detention, took her cell phone and literally manually typed in the website 
of the NSO group that then infected the phone. But it's also tricky because it's a no click. So you don't have to, it started out where you had to, you had to click certain links to get it activated in your phone, but now it's no click. So you don't have to do anything. And so of course you would not be aware at all if this was happening to you. So, so very and unregulated, it's it the larger story is that surveillance devices like this are an unregulated industry. It's a booming industry and it's giving countries that cannot afford to have excellent intelligence services themselves or domestic uh, FBI-like organizations that do this under specific legal authorities. It's giving them the ability to have very sophisticated intelligence, surveillance, law enforcement work. Uh, and this NSO group is not the only group in the world. These all operate very secretly, so they're very difficult to um, even know who's out there anymore. Yeah, and I, I, I can tell I can tell you that for, for me as a career intelligence officer in the Navy, uh, I, I immediately see the value <laughs> of this technology yeah. and why it could be so powerful. Uh, there have been, uh, you know, a number of other uh, reports about. You mentioned Mexico; they they use the uh, the software to help uh, capture El Chapo. Uh, that was uh, one of the tools that they used. But it's also been used, uh, and I'm sure your group uh, can can discuss this. But it's been used to spy on journalists and to undermine the work that journalists do uh, to report the truth, to report the facts. And it's also been used to spy on uh, political opposition, uh, people who are running in you know, other parties uh, not, that, that are in the minority in countries around the world. Uh, what most concerns you about how that NSO, NSO software uh, ha has been used around the world as a journalist? Well, as a journalist, I I think the most concerning thing is there's no way to know whether you're being targeted. And therefore, there's a paranoia that exists in a lot of countries where it's already hard to do journalism. And so that is really putting a burden on those journalists to be able to continue because they're not only putting themselves at risk if they're being surveilled, but more importantly, they're putting their sources at risk. Mm -hmm. And this psychologically has a huge impact. And in the film that Frontline did on it, you can we interview a number of people who almost come to tears when they learn that their phone was infected, not because of themselves, but because they are thinking about all the sources that they put at risk. And I'm sure that some of these sources are inside government, but also, you know, critics who are already under threat. So it really dampens it really makes life so much harder for pro-democracy uh, advocates, activists, and people like journalists who just, in some countries, kind of pretend that they function in a democracy, like in Hungary, like in India and Mexico. These are all nominally still democracies, but they're using tactics that are definitely authoritarian and are having this great effect on journalists and others. I, I'm sure you know the name uh, Moises uh, Naim, Dr. Naim. We had him on uh, as a guest a while back uh, with uh, the most recent book that he wrote, and he talks about uh, the, the autocrats uh, of the world who get elected through democratic means and then use uh, their power and influence to to change uh, democracies into essentially autocracies. And this is the kind of tool that gives those exactly. leaders the power they need to undermine opposition. It's a dangerous tool. Yes, <laughs> yes and it really, it's very, you know, it's, it's hard. We, we got a, uh, a leaked set of documents that led us to be able to do this. And without that, it would almost be impossible. We also had forensic specialists at Amnesty International and at Citizen Lab fascinating group, Citizen Lab in particular, who's done so much work in this space, who were able to download phones of people willing to give us their phones and then see if uh, they created a way to look to see, for tr look at traces of the software. The Biden administration reacted pretty harshly, much, much more harsh than I would have thought, which leads me to think there's much more to the story than we <laughs> found out. 
because they essentially blacklisted the company and they blacklisted uh, any manufacturer of any type of product that would be sold to the NSO group to use <clears throat> in making or selling this product. So uh, they obviously were very upset with it. Yeah. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week on KYMN Radio, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Dana Priest from The Washington Post and the Philip Merrill College of Journalism, and we're discussing the role journalism plays in holding government accountable in the national security arena. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, so, Dana, we have uh, about 16 minutes left or so in our show today. It goes by so fast. Uh, I'd like to talk about the role journalism pays in, it plays in holding government accountable to the people, this fourth estate role that I mentioned at the beginning of the show. Uh, we just mentioned uh, we see the rise of autocratic leaders around the world. One of the first actions they take when they come to power is to undermine the free press, if not outright uh, stamp it out. Uh, the, those autocrats, they, they really just can't handle critical reporting on the actions of, uh, of, of those individuals in power uh, or, or their, uh, their policies. They attack the press. They label it the enemy of the people. And sometimes in the case of leaders like uh, Vladimir Putin, they shut down the free press in favor of government-controlled media that controls the infosphere to ensure only good news is reported to the people. They may even arrest international reporters like American reporter Evan Gershkovich, who was arrested by the FSB in Russia just about a week ago. What trends have you seen in global journalism over the past decade in these attacks on journalists around the world? I would imagine you have some cogent thoughts on this, having served as a teacher for aspiring journalists at the University of Maryland. Yes, this is a situation I wasn't aware of until I started teaching and had a little time to look around at my profession and learned how bad things were getting. And I hate to report, but they've only gotten three times as worse in the last 10 years as they were in 2014. So not only in every country in the world that is autocratic for sure, but leaning that way, but also uh, in the United States where we now have a contest for, for the truth. So this is a very, odd type of uh, situation for ourselves. But overseas is where people are imprisoned, killed. Main countries either imprison their journalists or they kill them if they're upset with uh, independent journalism. And it's journal the flow, controlling the flow of information is a precursor to, uh, to any kind of authoritarian rule because information is you mentioned in your opening as one of the uh, elements of national power has become so much more uh, it's become so much more critical that autocrats do control it. And partly that's because of the internet and because of social media, which has democratized information theoretically. So you see in places like Turkey where there is, no more really independent media in in Egypt. Egypt has has uh, intimidated, imprisoned every independent journalist that there is. Mexico is very different. It's very uh, very dangerous. It's a it is really a, a terrorist tactic that the drug cartels in cahoots with the political leaders are killing off journalists that do not abide by their rules and which is which is mainly you cannot report on crime i was in mexico visiting a small newsroom to do this story it was surreal they actually had a <clears throat> all these small papers they have um, snitches in the newsroom on behalf of whichever cartel controls the territory and everyone knows who it is and knows they're there and the role of that person is to tell the editor what they can and cannot write every day and they get their marching orders from the local capo the local cartel boss and if they break the rules they and their colleagues are murdered and not just murdered they are you know murdered in the worst ways 
their bodies are displayed in or so it's very much a terrorist type of methodology that the cartels in cahoots with especially local leaders uh use to intimidate the public and and the media and it's right on our border it's the most unreported unappreciated story uh but i hate to say it um there aren't any good examples of people going in the opposite directions or countries ethiopia used to be uh was kind of a shining light for just a, a year until the uh elected president of ethiopia went in the other direction um now, I have to say this happens at the same time that the standing of the United States as a leader in human rights and free press is at, well, an all-time low in my life. Uh, and perhaps that's a lot. Perhaps the reason is uh, some of the things that did happen during 9-11, but it's also a leadership question. We used to stand up every, the U.S. used to stand up every year and and make a big deal out of imprisoned journalists there's much less of that now under President Trump, even worse, you know, because he vilified the media in particular. Uh, we have a much, a much uh, worse uphill battle within the, within the American public now. And I think you saw that in his um, retort to the charges yesterday and all of the falsehoods that he forward afterwards in his public statement and the reporters were trying their best to clarify what actually happened but I'm sure many people believe him over us so we have a really bad situation in our own country yes we do uh, you, I had mentioned uh, Evan Gershkovich uh, the Wall Street uh, Journal reporter um, what do you think is really going on there why, why was he actually arrested well, so something like this happened in the 1980s, Nick Dan Danilov, uh, during the Cold War, during the Soviet era. And I I think it's probably similar. It's just Putin using uh, a device to really anger the United States and to, to say, I'm not afraid of you. Uh, I control this place. I am not backing down from anything. And I'm going to now do something that you're really going to hate. And I don't care. And it took Danilov three years to get out of prison. Uh, Paul Whelan, a former Marine, you know, he's been in there for quite a while. There's no evidence that he will come out. Perhaps what they did in the Danilov case is eventually they undertook negotiations to release a, a Soviet who was in U.S. custody and that could eventually be another reason or another motive for doing this. He, um, you know, he's a Wall Street Journal reporter, accused of being a spy, this sort of classic accusation. And uh, his his lawyer was not allowed in the courtroom. The courts are not any kind. They don't operate at all like we would, that like anything we're used to. And I would... You know, unfortunately, I think that there is dialogue already. The U.S. has tried to um, make their point clear. But Putin has uh, absolutely eliminated all independent media in Russia. And like I said, eventually we may get some negotiating. Maybe there is somebody that he really wants out from either U.S. custody or European custody or something like that. So, or or Ukraine, some somebody being held in Ukraine. But I don't think we're going to see that right away. Yeah, they'll bide their time and figure out what their most uh, strategic uh, advantage is in in trading right. uh, Gershkovich for somebody that they care about. Uh, I mentioned uh, early in this show that uh, you have a student-led project called Press Uncuffed. Uh, could you talk a little bit more about that project? Yeah, it started because I was trying to figure out how am I going to teach national security journalism to <laughs> undergraduates? <laughs> uh, that's a big order. Um, and so I decided I need to do something very concrete. That's the moment I was researching all the problems in the world. So I decided I would give each student an imprisoned journalist somewhere in the world, and I would teach them how eventually – to talk over social media or on the phone or on Zoom or something like Zoom to their relatives and their colleagues to interview them about the person in prison 
And also then to learn about how the U.S. government works, who's what does the State Department do? Does the military have any role in something like that? Uh, how does the U.S. embassy operate? How does a foreign embassy operate? All sorts of national security things that uh, would be tied to an individual, so much more concrete for them. And my first class included a bunch of foreign students, one from Afghanistan, one from Mexico. And the students got so into this project because, first of all, they never thought they could do something like this. You know, they were actually on Skype with some of the relatives of the imprisoned journalists in, in Iran and in, and in um, Egypt and elsewhere. And so they were very excited about it, but they wanted to do more. So they create, we fundraise through Indiegogo uh, enough money to make these translucent bracelets with the names of nine journalists on them who were in prison at the time. And then we sold them for $3 each and we gave the money to the Committee to Protect Journalists, which is a very old line and and very established and well-respected organization that has a good methodology for deciding who's really a journalist and, and that sort of thing. Uh, and so that, and then we put their stories on a website called pressandcuff.org. And I still teach the class maybe once a year or yeah, once a year. And the students, there are always great students in it and they learn a lot. Unfortunately, there are more countries every year to pick from, although there are some that I have no, I no longer attempt, which China is one of them, because it's very um, risky for any Chinese living in China to talk, but it's also risky now for their relatives who might even be in the United States. Uh, China has a big program to make sure that those people don't talk or that they have them come back and and don't treat them well. Uh, so we, we don't do that. We don't actually do Egypt anymore, which is one of the number one offenders. But Egypt has taken sort of the Chinese intimidation tact. So people in Egypt are very, very reluctant uh, to talk, which mm. they weren't when I when they started when I started doing this in 2014. But so we, we do have a lot of other places. That sounds like a, a fantastic class. Since I I too teach undergrads, I, I know how fun it is uh, to to yeah. challenge them with really interesting <laughs> topics like that. I can I can only imagine how excited the journalism students are to do their research on on a project like this, uh, and it's for a darn good cause too. Uh, we, we have about uh, five minutes left or so. Um, I do want to ask about uh, Congress's repealing uh, the authorization for the use of military force. Uh, they're working on it anyway. We'll see if it actually gets through the House as well. It did make it through the Senate. Um, the role that reporters play uh, in holding the national security establishment accountable, this is a great example of that. Uh, the authorization for the use of military force after 9-11 was for a very specific set of issues. And it has been used over and over and over again by multiple administrations to carry out uh, counterterrorism raids uh, or missions, uh, counterinsurgency operations, even broader military operations for quite some time. Could you talk a little bit about sort of the, the challenges that the Fourth Estate faces in reporting on these kinds of things and holding the national security establishment accountable to the American people? I know that's a big question, and we only have a few minutes left, but— well, the first thing that I really think is important is that Congress has have has abrogated completely their responsibility to be the ones that say, okay, we'll go to war. And they've hid behind this to this law to do that. And I don't see that they are in the mood to have any more responsibility. Because then they can be held accountable more directly themselves. One of the most astounding stories that I did when right before the invasion of Iraq was how many senators actually went to read the National Intelligence Estimate on Iraq. I found three, three that went there because they had to physically walk over there and they couldn't uh, rely on their staffs. <clears throat> So I think that is the first thing that people should really understand is that the every administration is given 
freedom to do what they think is right. And no one has really challenged that up till today. It makes it, it doesn't, that statute itself does not make it difficult to hold them accountable. What makes it difficult is just war is difficult to cover. Uh, I do think we have relied more and more on special forces, both the over like white special forces, we call them, but also uh, the black special forces, the clandestine and the CIA to do much more. Now, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because I think one of the lessons from post 9-11 was that these very focused, targeted, small teams do a very good job if your mission is to kill or capture terrorists. Now, I don't know, you know, I think we've learned lessons about how efficient that is too in the long run, but if that's your focus, these these small teams are much better than large conventional units, you know, who have a lot of restraint and, and, uh, and that sort of thing. Uh, but they are operating in the secret world. So we are, uh, I'm always surprised when I take the time to look at how many places we are in, in the United, in the world is very, with a very small footprint that doesn't get much attention. Uh, and nobody's really like they were after 9-11 because there's so many other things to write about. No one's really looking at what's going on there. The Horn of Africa is a great example for that. Um, and the problem is these could escalate into something bigger, but they could also um, not be working. They could be counterproductive. So what I'm most uh, worried about right now is what I what I tried to, the point of the mission, the point of the first book that I wrote, which is we have not empowered the State Department, the diplomatic part that starts the dime. It's diplomacy first because war is the result of failure to do, to achieve your goals any other way. It is the failure. And yet I don't think that the State Department has changed all that much. I don't think that the rest of the branches of government, mainly legislative, but also executive, are or have empowered uh, or rely on diplomacy as much as uh, I certainly would have thought that they would have learned to do. So in the Russia context, especially, you know, I, it's hard to tell, you know, it's secret, but it is, it's hard to tell what is going on there. Uh, I hope something um, because uh, that's the best outcome is a diplomatic solution, a political solution. Yep. We are unfortunately going to sort of have to leave it there. Uh, we've reached our uh, the end of our show. Uh, Dana Priest, Washington Post reporter, and John S. and James L. Knight, chair in the public affairs journalism at Philip Merrill College of Journalism at the University of Maryland. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great to be here, John. Thank you. Dana, are there other resources you might highlight for our listeners so they can dive in more to the topics we discussed today, websites? I know that I, I would like to highlight the Frontline article that you talked about for the Pegasus NSO project. I actually watched that. It was fantastic. Uh, I mm. highly recommend that for people. But other websites that you might recommend? Well, of course, all the stories that you mentioned can be found at the Washington Post website. Um, other than that, you know, I am a big fan of The Economist, of the of Foreign Affairs, you know, some, I'm uh, not going to give you any real, of the work of the um, International Crisis Group on some of these issues. All those places you can find a lot out about um, the regions of the world that we've been talking about. So uh, big fan there. I think the New York Times is doing a great job in their coverage of Russia too, of Ukraine rather. Um, so I also really, uh, so Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty is is a very good, almost like a canary in the coal mine type thing because, you know, they, they're based in Prague. They have people on the ground. Um, yes, they're run by the U.S. government, but they do have a separate, a wall that separates them uh, between the U.S. government ideology or or talking points or propaganda so uh they have people from the region reporting on the region and i always find that 
um, really helpful. And then your student-led project is pressuncuffed.org. Is that right? That's right. That's I, right. I hope, I hope our so listeners have, <laughs> will go check that yeah, one out. Yeah, please do. We don't have any new articles yet, but we will. I'm teaching it in the fall, and then we will uh, put up new ones. But the old ones, I still think, are pretty impressive for undergraduates. Yeah. Dana Priest, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, John. And that closes this edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today here on KYMN Radio. I look forward to sharing time with you again next week. We will have a special edition show. I won't be on at 9 o'clock on Wednesday morning. Instead, we'll be on at 9 o'clock on Thursday morning. Uh, So please join us on the morning of uh, Thursday, April 13th, for a special edition of National Security This Week. Thank you for being a listener. Have a great finish to your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns with host John Olson. It's brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check their website, cybersecuritysummit.org, for a listing of their upcoming webinar series. 